Good morning. Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary. For those of you who don't know, my name is Jason Coker. I'm one of the co-ministers here alongside uh, Janelle. And of course, Joey and Alex are also ministers on staff. If you didn't know that already, we're going to go ahead and continue our series on what I'm thinking of as uh, women of resurrection. Ever since Easter, we've really been focused on exploring the, the lives and the stories of women in the New Testament and how their stories represent a kind of resurrection, a kind of new life for women that Christianity promises that we oftentimes neglect or forget or obscure uh, or silence even throughout the history of the church. So today I want to ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 16 verses 11 through 15. If you don't have a Bible with you. We're going to put those passages up on the screen. There's a typo on that first slide. That's my fault, by the way. The actual verses are uh, Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15. Before we jump into that passage, though, I'm asking you just to pray with me for a moment to frame our perspective as we approach this text. God, we thank you again for today for an opportunity to gather in this place on the corner of Freeman and Topeka and Oceanside where people have gathered for nearly a hundred years to be shaped and formed by your goodness and your love, your mercy and your grace. We pray that you would do the same for us this morning, that by attending to these words, to these prayers, to these songs, to the lives of these women saints, that you would change us to reflect uh, that divinity. It's our hope to not only be glistening mirrors of divinity, but to recognize it in others whenever we encounter it, especially those who are different than we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15 begins like this. Verse 11 says, We set sail to Troas, and took a straight course to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So we've jumped in midstream to this sort of missionary story, right? There's the narrative of Paul and Timothy, in this case told by Luke. Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and he's telling this sort of missionary story of this early Christian movement that is spreading beyond Jerusalem, right? Jesus' followers were Jewish. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi in the earliest days. The church in Jerusalem was essentially a group of Jews who really saw Jesus, this crucified and, according to them, resurrected figure as the Jewish Messiah. But within a few decades, this hope, this gospel represented this good news embodied in Jesus began to spread beyond the Jewish people and beyond Jerusalem. And so we have this story in the book of Acts of how that happened. So we've jumped in midstream to the story of Paul and Timothy uh, traveling to this Roman colony called Philippi. Uh, and then in verse, picking it back up in verse 12 says this, we remained in this city that is Philippi, this Roman colony, colony for several days. Verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and we spoke to the women who had gathered there. 
A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. And she was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. And the Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. Who is this woman, Lydia? Well, in the history of Christianity, Lydia is venerated by every historic Christian tradition as a saint, particularly because she is understood to be the first European convert to Christianity. She is a part of this Greco-Roman culture uh, in an area that is now a part of Western Turkey, and as such, she is by our sort of understanding today, she represents a kind of European person. And so, of course, for Western Christianity that largely uh, grows and, and begins to conquer the world out of a Western European understanding of Christianity, Lydia becomes a highly significant person in the history of the church. She even has her own feast days in every expression of historic Christianity, the Orthodox Church, Catholic Church, uh, uh, Anglican Communion, the Lutheran Church, they all have their own feast days for Lydia, celebrating her as such. We also know from this passage that she is a merchant or a businesswoman of some kind associated with purple dye. And that actually is literally what her name means. Lydia, her name, Lydia of Thyatira, means that this is a woman who is from a group uh, uh, an area, rather, a geographic area called Lydia, which is also a kind of ethnic linguistic group. Lydia was a language spoken at that time in Western Turkey. So she's from this sort of ethnic group in Western Turkey, and she's from Thyatira, which literally means purple, because she comes from a city that is well known for its production of purple dye. Purple dye is important because it is highly labor intensive to make. It involves essentially harvesting a, a lot of very small mollusks, right, and shucking them and shelling them and then drying them out and grinding them into powder. And then out of that comes this rich purple dye from which you can make reds and various shades of purple. And because it's such a, a highly labor-intensive process to make this dye, it's a very expensive commodity. So purple becomes associated with royalty, in all of these uh, ancient Western and even sort of ancient Near Eastern cultures. It's very expensive to make and it's very expensive to purchase. Therefore, Lydia is very likely a woman of means. She's rich, is what I'm trying to say. She is a person with great uh, uh, abundance available to her. This is, of course, unusual in more ways than one. She's not only a woman of means, but this passage also tells us that she is the head of her household. And so verse 15, when she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, then come and stay at my home. So Lydia is converted to Christianity by Paul, and then as a result of that, she brings her entire household to Christianity, converts the whole household to Christianity, and invites them to come and stay with her at her home. This is a woman not just of means, but of genuine authority. She governs her household. This would have been highly unusual in an ancient Greek culture. 
In the ancient Greek culture, an oikos or a household was typically governed strictly by the husband. And that household included a lot of people. It included the husband and the wife, also whatever daughters they might have that weren't yet married. It also included all of the sons, whether they were married or not. And if they were married, the household also included all of the daughters-in-law. And then on top of that, of course, all of the servants of the household. And in a wealthy household like this, there would have been a lot of servants. In other words, a household in the ancient Greek oikos, particularly for people of means, was like a little community in and of itself. And it would have been very common for a household to convert if they did convert to a particular god or religion. We see that happening with Cornelius also in the book of Acts, which we won't visit today. But women were generally con considered to be inferior people in the ancient Greek household. This oikos, this community of people who lived together, were ruled strictly by a husband who was the only person who had property rights, the only person who had the right to participate in uh, economic or political affairs, and had strict governance over the household. Aristotle, for his part, for example, considered women to be intellectually incapable of making decisions for themselves. Now, I am not saying that. But this was sort of steeped in the culture of that time. Not so unlike certain strands of our culture today. In addition to being considered intellectually incapable, women were also in ancient Greek society sexually victimized regularly. To be a woman in ancient Greek society meant that at some point in your adolescence, you were connected with an adult man in a relationship that was sexual in nature. Pederasty was a regular part of the ancient Greek culture. And both boys and girls as adolescents were generally mentored by an older man who would engage in a sexual relationship with them. If they were not a part of a household that had enough means for them to be connected in that kind of relationship, then they typically were forced into some version of prostitution. My point, of course, is that to be a woman in the ancient Near East was extraordinarily difficult. It was extraordinarily traumatic. And in this culture, Lydia, is elevated in this passage as a woman of means, a woman who governed her own household, and we see a woman who is interested in the Jewish religion. She's characterized in this passage as a worshiper of God in verse 14. Some Bibles render that as a God-fearer. This is a term that's also applied to Cornelius in the book of Acts. So when you are not a Jewish person, but you are interested in the Jewish religion, you are interested in the idea of the Jewish God, which was a very different notion of God than the surrounding culture. In the ancient Near East, religion was essentially a highly individualized private affair. You could attach yourself to any number of gods in the pantheon of gods. You could decide what your set of gods might be, and that became your moral and ethical compass in life. And within that sort of context, some people saw Judaism as a highly attractive alternative. Because even though Judaism, for example, was also patriarchal, that is, Judaism had 
a lesser view of women than men, it was far more honoring of women than ancient Greek culture. Judaism considered women to be the cradle of life as those who uh, bore and birthed babies. Jewish women were considered to be far more capable of understanding suffering than men. I know, it's a shock. Women were understood to be people of tremendous wisdom in the ancient Jewish culture. And so women were protected in Judaism from many of the commonplace uh, victimizations that we see in other cultures of that time. So if you are a woman like Lydia, who rules her household for whatever reason, she may have been a widow or she may have never had an occasion to marry and somehow was able to carve out a niche for herself as a woman of power and authority and means in this culture, then Judaism would have been a very attractive alternative because it would have been relatively feminist compared to the culture of the day. And then of course what we see happening here is this woman who is a God-fearer, a worshiper of God, but not Jewish, is exposed to an expression of Judaism that is available to Gentiles. Paul brings the Jewish gospel to Gentiles and says, you don't have to become Jews in order to be connected to the Spirit of God. God Paul delivers this message, and Lydia is converted. She converts her entire house. In fact, it's very likely that all the women down by the river outside the gate were converted to Christianity, or at least a majority of them, and that becomes the foundation of the church at Philippi. So Lydia then, in this story in Acts, is not just a woman of means, a woman of authority in a culture where that was highly unusual. She also is the first European convert, but in addition to that, perhaps more significantly, she is the founder of the church at Philippi. We have Paul's writings to this church collected in the letter to the Philippians. This is the church that Lydia creates by receiving this gospel message from Paul. Something important I think we need to notice, though, about this passage is that this entire affair, this connection with this woman of means and power and authority comes not because of Paul's great wisdom or strategy, but because the Spirit directs Paul and Timothy to Philippi. If we back up a few passages in Acts 16, we read this in verses 7 through 9. And when they had come opposite of Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Whatever that means. Right? So Paul and Timothy are traveling in this area. They attempt to go to one place. It's where they think they should go, but the Spirit of God compels them to not go there and instead directs them elsewhere. So... Verse 8, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and during the night, Paul had a vision. And there stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So this is the Spirit of God prevailing upon Paul and Timothy to not go where they were planning, but instead to go to Philippi, and they do. And there, what happens? Back to verse 13. This is important. They come to Philippi. They stay there for several days. Verse 13 says this, on the Sabbath day, this would have been Saturday, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer. 
Why in the world on the Sabbath day did Paul and Timothy suppose that there was a place of prayer at the river outside the gate? Because in any ancient Greek town like this, there were likely to be a community of Jewish folks. And they would, want, they would have wanted to worship. They would have wanted to gather together to practice their rituals, just like we're doing today. But in Judaism, you need 10 men in order to establish a synagogue. So again, even though Judaism was much more free, much more liberated, much more honoring of women, it is still essentially patriarchal. You need 10 Jewish men to establish a place of worship for local Jewish folks. And when there weren't 10 men in any given town like Philippi, it was common practice, common custom on the Sabbath instead to go outside the town, outside the walls, outside of the gate to the nearest river and gather there for prayer. And this, of course, was Paul's strategy. Anytime he went to a new town and he wanted to bring the gospel of Jesus, where he would go is to a synagogue. It'd be sort of like, you know, if I wanted everybody to be a progressive Christian, you know, every Sunday morning I went to like the local megachurch parking lot and started preaching like my version of the gospel. <laughs> Thought about it, right? That was Paul's strategy. He went where he knew there would be common ground, common values, common beliefs, and that was typically a synagogue, and he would preach about Jesus there. Well, there was no synagogue in Philippi because the Jewish community was too small for, for 10 men to be gathered, 10 Jewish men. And so he figured there's going to be a group of Jewish folks down by the river. And he goes down outside the gate to the river, and what do they find? They find a group of women. Those women are praying and worshiping together. They're not Jewish. They are Gentiles. What can we learn from this? Well, this is, of course, a bit of literature. This isn't just a factual story about something that happened in history. Luke, as an author, is giving us clues and hints through images and metaphors about how God works in the world. And a river, of course, is a symbol in Scripture for the Spirit of God. Water is often used as an image or a metaphor for the Spirit, how the Spirit works. We are baptized into water. Jesus tells a Pharisee, unless you are born again, born of water and Spirit, you can't know who God is. Water is that cleansing ritual that represents how the Spirit of God moves in our lives. But the water, the river, is outside the gate. It's not within the walls of what is institutionally sanctioned or official. It is not within the walls of what is considered to be the status quo. It's not within the walls of ordinary belief and practice. The Spirit of God is outside the gate. The Spirit of God is moving beyond those boundaries that have been created to signify what is acceptable. Outside the gate is where Paul finds a group of women who are passionate about God, who are seeking to be connected to who God is, and therefore Paul finds the Spirit of God 
at work with these women outside of the conventions of normal religion. I love the way the American Baptist theologian Oscar Garcia Johnson describes this passage. He says, this text portrays the spirit not merely as a supportive mystical presence. This, I think, is something that we often do. God is our like supportive, mystical presence. God is that spirit that we can connect to in order to meet our own felt needs. I'm not saying that that is wrong, but God is much more than that. The text portrays the spirit not merely as a supportive, mystical presence, but as an agent of mission, disrupting and rerouting the very project of Christian mission to uncharted theological and cultural territory. This is what Lydia and her compatriots at the river represent. The Spirit of God is outwork outside the gates of our normal understanding. The Spirit of God is always at work outside the walls and the gates that we have erected in order to baptize those that we think are in versus those that we think are out. The Spirit of God is always at work leading us into expressions of spirituality that represent uncomfortable territory. This is always what the Spirit of God is doing. And in community or in expressions of religion, just like ours, we are often obsessed with building walls and gates so that we can define who belongs and who is excluded. Where we more often than not find the Spirit of God at work is on the other side of those gates, where there is fresh water where people are gathered together to find God in ways that have not been sanctioned, have not been baptized, have not been made a part of the official doctrine. This is what the Spirit of God is doing at all times, and it is deeply uncomfortable. In the New Testament, where we find the Spirit of God at work in that way is most often, whether we like it or not, with women or with people of a different ethnicity or people of a different culture. And this is the great challenge to us represented by these passages. What walls and gates have we erected to contain God? What walls and gates have we erected so that we can be comfortable saying this group of people, they're the ones who are glistening mirrors of divinity but not these. That question that Janelle posed us earlier today is incredibly relevant to this because the question is always, can we see beyond our own walls and our own gates to recognize that every single human being, no matter what gender, what race, what ethnicity, what socioeconomic status, perhaps even no matter what religion or non-religion, are in fact glistening mirrors of divinity through which God is working by God's Spirit. Amen?
Pray with me. God, we thank you again for today, for this opportunity for us to read and to pray and to sing, to lift up our voices, and also for an opportunity to reflect, to be challenged by the stories of ancient saints, to be stretched by ancient texts that come from cultures that are very different than our own. We ask that as we read through these stories in the coming weeks that you would grow our hearts, that we would become people who have more room to include those who have been forced outside the gates of our communities, forced outside the gates of our societies, and even those who have been forced outside the gates of our religious practices. It's my prayer, God, that we would learn to be uncomfortable as followers of Christ, that we would emulate Lydia, who was willing to leverage her life and her means for the good and the liberation of others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the get involved portion of the morning as we get set to close out. I love that that's what this space is all about. All of us getting even more involved than on Sunday mornings. So uh, how not to read the Bible uh, is happening uh, on Tuesdays, um, the 16th of May uh, and the 20th of June. And it's 6.30 p.m. on Zoom. That reminder you can find on uh, the website. So if you're tired of hearing people using the Bible to justify some bad things that they're thinking, uh, this completely radically turns that over. Uh, and you can read scripture from an intelligent, faithful, and a radically inclusive perspective. You can volunteer at OSC um, at the Brother Benno Foundation and uh, their outreach services to the Oceanside community. Help us serve breakfast to the homeless by volunteering in their kitchen on two different Fridays, April 28th or May 26th. And I am definitely volunteering to help with that. I'm excited about that. Um, you can contact uh, info at oceansidesanctuary.org to join or just tell somebody I'll be there. The book club uh, every first Thursday, May 4th, it May is almost here, May 4th at 6.30 p.m. It's a Zoom session. Uh, our May book club is A Generous Orthodoxy by Brian McLaren. Whether you find yourself uh, inside, outside, or somewhere on the fringe of Christianity, uh, he walks you, the author does, through the many traditions of faith, bringing to the center uh, a way that draws us closer to Jesus and to one another. Uh, for all these events and more, uh, you can fill out a connect card, of course. You can grab a program at the front. Uh, you can RSVP at that website, the .org website slash calendar, or you can uh, scan the QR code that you'll see throughout the church. 
And of course, it's a 501c3, the Oceanside Sanctuary is, um, you know, the lights don't stay on uh, by the grace of the uh, utility company. So anything that we can all do, um, whether it's when we come, dropping something in the box, or maybe giving monthly at that website, which I think is the easier uh, way to approach that. Uh, that's so, so appreciated. And of course, your, your gift of time and, uh, and talent is a gift unto itself as well. Well, you know, the, the music that uh, Joey started with, uh, along with the band today, got me thinking about Earth Day, and then Janelle mentioned that in, in her remarks, and how really beautiful everything is, and how just taking a walk and, you know, using our senses to take everything in, you know, it's really easy to do, um, as Alex had said during communion, to remember him. And I think tying in what Jason said about, you know, just um, not closing the gates and, and not keeping the walls up for other people. You know, it's the whole experience as we walk around. It's, it's the beautiful place that we live, the beautiful earth we were given, and the people of all kinds that we come in contact with as we walk. So it's just easy to remember him, I think. Maybe we can think about that this week. May the peace of God be with all of you. Also with you. Let the church say amen. Let the church